This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org ccnyc. Thanks for listening. From the Lankavatara Sutra, <clears throat> section 88. <clears throat> Mahamati once asked the Buddha, Bhatkavan, According to what the Bhatkavan has said, by carrying out the six paramitas, one attains enlightenment. How are they carried out? The Buddha told Mahamati, there are three different kinds of paramitas, mundane, metaphysical, and transcendental. Mahamati, as for the mundane paramitas, because those who are attached to a self and what belongs to a self cling to dualities. They carry out the parameters of charity in order to enjoy the form, sound, smell, taste, and touch of other states of existence. And they do the same in regard to morality, forbearance, vigor, meditation, and wisdom for the sake of worldly powers or rebirth in the heavens of Brahma. Mahamati, as for the metaphysical for the metaphysical paramitas. Because Shravaka and Pradaka Buddhas become attached to Nirvana, they practice the six paramitas in order to enjoy the bliss of Nirvana for themselves. Mahamati. As for the transcendent paramitas, because those who realize that the projections to which they are attached are nothing but perceptions of their own mind, and their own mind is thereby their own mind, and that their own mind is thereby divided, they do not give rise to rejections or become attached to other states of existence. By not letting their minds become attached to material appearances, they engage in the transcendent practice of the parameters of charity for the happiness of all beings. By not giving rise to restrictions regarding the projection of objective conditions, this is the parameter of morality. By not giving rise to the projections of patience while knowing what grasps and what is grasps, this is the paramita of forbearance. Not giving rise to the projections of practice while practicing with zeal within the three periods of the night, this is the paramita of vigor. Not becoming attached to the nirvana of shravakas when projections when projections cease, this is the paramita of meditation, says I. And examining the non-existence of the projections of one's mind with insight without falling into dualities and transforming one's karmic body into an indestructible one and reaching the realm of the personal realization of Buddha knowledge, this is the paramita of wisdom. So this is a translation by Red Pine. I checked several other translations, and I remember the Lankavatara Sutra giving, creating a big impression on me uh, when I looked at the only existing translation back in the days uh, by uh, Suzuki, and it was um, I couldn't understand anything in it. Nothing. <laughs> it just. <laughs> 
Um, and part of that was where I was in practice, and part of that was uh, the quality of the translation was done by someone whose first language was not English, um, and um, was very intimate with the sutra, which is uh, a core sutra along with the heart sutra of Zen practice, um, but not intimate with the expression in English. And the, you know, I chose this because it's an all-day sitting. I would never give a talk like this on Sunday because I, I think it would not resonate. And yet, we have to hear these teachings um, which may be challenging to us uh, over and over and over again, all from different presentations, in order for them to gradually make an impression on us, and gradually to begin to get some sense of the, the depth of the fundamental teachings of the Buddha. Um, and because we, all, all, we are all coming from a deeply deluded perspective, um, you know, at first it just bounces off us, as I just described my own experience. Um, but over time, and hearing them again, not necessarily these exact words, but, you know, the Diamond Sutra, the Heart Sutra, the, the, usually the Ango themes in some way uh, are directed this way, um, to invite us to kind of peel back the layers and work with both intellectual understanding and appreciation and what's being offered, what's being pointed at, and how that is integrated with what we ourselves are experiencing through our own practice. And by that happening over time, significant time and effort and study and life experience, uh, our understanding of what we're hearing and practicing and eventually being able to respond to uh, in various situations, deeply changes. And that's how it happens. You know, and I, I, you know, the first quite a number of years of my practice, I, I can remember uh, taking the sayings, most of the books that were available were the sayings of <clears throat> Lehman Pong, Hakuin, Dogen, etc., etc. They weren't the whole <clears throat> uh, canon of the presentation of the teachings. And so looking at them, many of them were koans and going, Oh, okay, and going on to the next, and oh, okay. <laughs> and yet, somehow something happens when you practice that, when you sit. Um, so the Lankavatara Sutra, um, is its primacy is of consciousness, and the teachings of consciousness as the only reality. It's... Um, it emphasizes that and the Yogacara school of Buddhism, which I'm not going to explain at this point, but has to do with our mind, the Buddhist understanding of, of the layers of our mind, uh, both the sensory layers and the organs of those senses, and then how that information comes into consciousness and what we do with it in creation of a self, and um, how that is seen through um, until the eighth level of consciousness. And we've had an ango on this, and it's not unusual to draw in these uh, the Yogacara teachings in the various retreats. I go back to it fairly often um, because it's so fundamental. And so um, the mind-only school of Buddhism is represented by the Lankavatara Sutra. So the Buddha said, 
and this is pulling it from the sutras, so it starts off by saying, on the contrary, well, the contrary is our deluded mind, where we think the reality out there is, is that, that we experience through our senses is the fixed, permanent, ongoing, yet fixed and permanent reality that we think is. And the Buddha says, is quoted as saying, on the contrary, my teaching is based on the upon the recognition that the objective world, like a vision, is a manifestation of the mind itself. It teaches the cessation of ignorance, desire, deed, causality. It teaches the cessation of suffering that arises from the discrimination of the triple world. Um, So uh, because the mind is seen as mind only or consciousness only, all all phenomena are empty, a void uh, of self. That's what we're talking about, of a, a self, a soul. So there's no fixed thing that you or I can point to, including our, our self. Um, so that's a perspective. Um, that's uh, a realization. Um, so the, the Lankavatara Sutra is one of the, as I mentioned, one of the primary sutras that Zen practice rests on. Um, so Mahamati is uh, the uh, person asking the questions, sometimes represented as Sabudi and uh, other uh, Buddhist characters within the sutras. And Mahamati means great wisdom. So he's an advanced practitioner, really, pressing the Buddha on the very specifics of what practice and realization is. Uh, once more asked the Buddha, Bhagavan, Bhagavan's an honorific for the Buddha, according to what the Bhagavan has said, by carrying out the six paramitas, one attains enlightenment. Uh, how are they carried out? So um, the paramitas, uh, one translation is that which has gone beyond, that which goes beyond or transcends uh, our deluded perspective. So another perspective is the other shore. So this is the shore of delusion. That's the shore of realization. And through practice and realization, we get to the other shore. Uh, that's a simplified perspective of it. Uh, a larger perspective is there's not a single drop of dif- difference between the two sh- shores. And Dogen emphasized that in his teachings. Um, so these transcendent perfections... Um, they brought to mind a saying of Shantideva that the perfections of a bodhisattva do not support me, which would be the usual way that we'd look at it, right? That we follow these perfections, take up the paramitas, which we repeatedly give workshops on and mention and work in, and Prajna Paramita, the Heart Sutra, uh, you know, it's all connecting just some of the dots of what you encounter in practice. But Shantideva said, the perfections of the bodhisattva, the paramitas of a bodhisattva, do not support me. It is I who support them. So think about that. Uh, It is I who support them. There's a a place and a time in practice which is not a single moment by any means, at which we begin to have gotten to a place in our zazen where we trust it in a profound and deep way. And the manifestation of that is that we sit. And we sit, we want to sit, and we recognize that we need to sit. Not as a, uh, a way to be safe from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, uh, but 
because we have to. We have to. Uh, and I can say more about, you know, how we experience that as suffering if we don't or what happens. But, you know, it's your life. You fill in the blanks. So that's a natural part of the path. And there's also a place in practice where we go, oh, I'm sitting. My life is different. It's changed. And I am so fucking deeply deluded. Meaning we're seeing in our life because we now have a reference system. We now have a place that we could see the places. We don't think of it this way, but I'll frame it this way. where We're not so deeply caught by our delusions. So for the first time, we have a way to see our life and the the life of others as well. That it doesn't have to be this. And when I say this, implicit in this, whatever you see within this life is the subtlety and profundity of suffering. You know, in whatever form of things and life and work and relationship and, and how that seems to happen so automatically and seamlessly. And so we're seeing that in ourselves for the first time. Why? Because our mind is clearer. It's slower in the best sense of being slower. It's less reactive. It has more possibility of seeing what's going on. It's To put it in a more profound way, it's connecting with the emptiness of what is before us, the illusions, if you will, of what is before us, uh, and seeing that. And so we're seeing that in our zazen, and I'm putting this in a very particular way because it doesn't work like that. We don't actually say, oh, I'm seeing the illusions. I mean, we may say that, but that's not the functionality of it. I mean, the functionality of of it is, you know, I'm sitting, I'm clearer, I'm happier, I'm more functional, uh, um, quieter. And all I see are the parts of my life where that's not working. <laughs> you know? I'm unhappy, I'm not clear, I'm confused. I'm, you know? uh, and that's great. That's what practice does. And my promise to you, at least in my life, is to a certain extent that will never end, and it should not end, because the perfections, the parameters of a bodhisattva do not support me, it is I who support them. So it's more work to do. Uh, that's the nature of practice. But that doesn't mean it's not, we're not in the, in the sense of supporting them, realizing ourselves. That's the point of the paramitas. And that's the one answer to the question of how do I take this into my life, which people ask at a certain point in practice um, or ask over and over because they encounter themselves in Zazen a particular and powerful way, may encounter themselves that way. Um, and then say, well, you know, here it is. What about out there? And so the perfections of the paramitas are the practices that we take up. And there are others, but these are kind of fundamental. Um, so we enter by the realm of practice. That's what the paramitas are. And that's the question that's being asked here. Um, you know, how do, how do I enter? How, uh, you know, one translation says, how are they carried out? You know, another, how do I enter? How do I take this up as my life? So what is practice? And what are we practicing? And that's, these questions are meant to be personal to you. I mean, we, we are practicing seeing into the nature of reality. That's a given. We are practicing seeing into ourself. 
That's a given. We are practicing seeing into our own heart of true compassion. That's a given. And when we, to the extent that we investigate these things within ourself, we're seeing them within all beings. To the extent that we investigate the heart of compassion as a practice, we see others from the perspective of that heart of compassion. And others is not just humans. And seeing that and practicing that is the practice of awakening. It's one way of understanding how to answer that question that's being asked here. And so, you know, I say that's the practice of awakening, but what is meant by awakening? What do we ask that question, actually? We asked that at the Mondo Thursday night. That was asked. I didn't, I don't know if I asked. Did I ask it or someone else? (laughs) Someone else asked. Good question, isn't it? And I would respond by saying, who are you? The Buddha told Mahamati, there are three different kinds of paramitas, mundane, metaphysical, and transcendental. What the Buddha is pointing at is the essence of what we practice and what we realize. That's very clear, very simple. And he's pointing at three different perspectives. So mundane is ordinary, every day. The metaphysical of a pradaka Buddhist and transcendental of a bodhisattva Buddhist. So he says, and as for the mundane paramitas, because those who are attached to a self and what belongs to a self cling to dualities, they carry out the paramita of charity, uh, generosity would be a better translation in my mind, in order to enjoy the form, sound, smell, taste, touch of other states of existence. And they do the same in regard uh, to the sake of, for the sake of worldly powers or rebirth in the heavens of Brahmas. Mahamudi as for the, well, let me stop there. According to the Theravadan school, Pradaka Buddhas are uh, one who has attained, um, well, let me back up. So mundane. Let me just. There are plenty of people who practice Buddhism and are Buddhist who look at practice from the perspective of Given the the reality of my life, uh, what can I do to to practice Buddhism? What can I do given the set pieces of my life? And so another way of understanding that is they're not interested in fundamentally changing their understanding of their life. They're interested in, in practicing the perspectives of Buddhism that support them in the place that they are. And I suspect that's the vast majority of people who practice Buddhism within the world. Um, That uh, both in the United States and Asia. You know, I I remember going to a Buddhist temple in Asia and a number of them and the overwhelming impression is that people were going there um, 
to write down what they needed. May I win the lottery, buy me Mercedes-Benz equivalent, put it on the altar, and then do prostrations and offer incense to get what they want and need. Um, so they carry out the parameter of charity in order to enjoy the form, sound, smell, taste, touch of really of what they want. And they carry out in regard to all the other parameters that. So that's mundane. That's oriental. No, that's, I'm sorry, it's not oriental. It's ordinary. And we all start from here. So these are not, I would not encourage you to look at the, these as sequential. These are all going on all the time. We have a sense of self. We want what we want. We don't want what we don't want. And that's functional. That's real. Real in the sense that's our experience at any given time. And so these sutras are set up as a way of teaching and a way of study. And often they take on a linear quality to them. Um, But from a Mahayana perspective, that's not a um, wholesome way of understanding them. What would be, at least in my experience, both real and helpful is to understand that the mundane, the selfish perspective of practice is alive and well in all of us. And um, given that, maybe we don't, don't like to think of it that way or acknowledge that, but given that, from my perspective, that's a reality in all of us, it's best to acknowledge that and honor that and see that. And so from that perspective, the parameters are something that, we, uh, that are offered to us and that we practice to get what we want. That's a limited but real perspective. And so he says, uh, for the mundane parameters, because the, those who are attached to a self and what belongs to a self cling to dualities, and they carry out the parameter of charity in order to enjoy all the aspects of it, of those states of existence. So I'm acknowledging that's both our starting point, but also an ongoing place where our practice and realization does not reach, and that's present in every human being, no matter how realized they are. That's my perspective, at least. Then he says, Mahamati, as for the metaphysical paramitas, because Shravaka and Pradaka Buddhas become attached to Nirvana, they practice the six paramitas in order to enjoy the bliss of Nirvana for themselves. So this too is us, right? Don't we all want realizations so that we can stop our suffering and feel good about ourselves? Uh, how many of us have gone into uh, Dyson and said, my mind is such, and all of a sudden it fell away, and there was wonderful calm and peacefulness and some people would express it, I was happy or I was in a place of bliss or wonder or comfort. And I kept sitting, day three of the session or whatever, and it went away. How do I get it back? So Pradaka Buddhas is one who has obtained supreme and perfect insights 
Buddha, but who dies without proclaiming the truth to the world, without offering that to the world. And Travakas are unable to teach the Dharma and even hesitate to teach. Pradaka Buddhas give moral teachings but do not bring others to enlightenment. They leave no Sangha as a legacy to carry on the Dharma. And that's an interesting perspective, if somewhat loaded, um, given that these sutras are one of the purposes of the sutras uh, in every school of Buddhism is to put forth that school of Buddhism and indirectly proclaim the superiority of that school of Buddhism to other schools of Buddhism. So that's what's happening here. Um, I think it's fascinating at least from my perspective of what's happening in Western Buddhism, when I see how Theravadan Buddhism is, you know, creeping into Mahayana perspectives, and Mahayana perspectives are creeping into Theravadan and Tibetan Buddhist perspectives, and Tibetan Buddhist perspectives are creeping into Zen perspectives. I wouldn't say Mahayana because they, from their viewpoint, they are also Mahayana, but Zen meaning... uh, how can you people sit so much, as one Tibetan <laughs> person said? So they're coming at practice usually, and this is a general statement, um, from a perspective of compassion, and you get the emptiness perspective as you go along. Um, and Zen tends to, and this is a general statement, come at it from the perspective of emptiness, and you get the compassionate perspective as it comes along later. Uh, that's a... a, a kind of a stupid and simplified way to look at it. Um, but it has some functionality, I think. And some of the weaknesses of Zen training is has been that. Uh, and so if you've been around Zen practice in this order or other orders, uh, you've seen changes over the years of the teaching to, to tr- kind of address what needs to be dress, addressed. And the same in the West of other schools of Buddhism, as I just said. These are my opinions. They're not meant to be a uh, um, bottom line of any profound teaching. Um, but Pradaka Buddhas basically are practicing for their own realization. And that is a tradition within Buddhism. Uh, and therefore, um, may not be offering that to others. Um, I'm cautious of that kind of thing. But dealing with the sutras and their definitions. Shravaka Buddhas are unable to teach the Dharma. It's interesting. So the comparison to me, and I've spoken of this before, being raised professionally in the medical field, is that I've seen a lot of physicians who had all the knowledge but could not um, transmit that knowledge to their patients. It wasn't functional for them. Uh, sometimes it was out of fear that they would do harm. And if you're not willing to do harm, you can't teach. You can't offer it to others because you will, you will harm. People will come away feeling harmed. Let's put it that way. Um, for We're dealing in the realm of spiritual practice here. And um, what you think and what the person you're working with says may not be the reality of or a reality of what's going on beneath the surface. And therefore, assumptions are made and teachings are offered out of that, or, and on and on and on. And that's, to one degree or another, true of all of us. 
uh, we're complicated beings, and uh, only some of that is revealed to us. Um, but I've seen physicians who uh, I felt um, could help most people, but could not help the ones who needed it the most. So helping most people is easy. Uh, an average physician who is an average physician will help most people because most things are common and easy and you their cookbook. But they may not help the person who requires the the careful consideration of other options. And that's where it matters. And as soon as you enter that realm in spiritual practice or in medicine, um, you don't know. Things are unclear. And that's how they are with our practice. We're entering that realm. We don't know. And we want to nail it down and know in our life and in our practice that this is how it should be. Uh, But we don't know. Nobody does. As for the transcendent parameters, because those who realize that the projections to which they're attached are nothing but the perceptions of their own, one, their own mind, and that their own mind is thereby divided, they do not give rise to projections or become attached to other states of existence or become attached to their projections. We always give rise to projections, right? That's our mind's business, seemingly. So the Buddha speaks of transcendence. But what is being transcended? What is transcendence in the context of our life? In one sense, it's, you know, when we speak usually of transcendence, we're not speaking of our ordinary life. We're speaking of our extraordinary perspective of life. But whatever enlightenment is, it can't be apart from our being. It it can't be apart from our separate sense of self. Think about that. That our separate sense of self is in the picture. Um, there was a famous, I'm not going to be able to quote this well, um, Basso wrote a famous haiku about um, something, the sun created a shadow or something like that. Or, and um, I saw myself in the picture or in the frame, something like that. I'm badly misquoting it. And I was startled. I mean, what, he's talking about himself. You know, how could that be realized? But we need to acknowledge ourselves, And we need to acknowledge that as a way that that's how we wake up is with this self. And it's never going away. And the question is, what are we going to live out of? If we're going to live out of a self-centered desire to get what we want when we want, that's one way to live. And it creates a karma of that that you can see in this world around you. And another way is taking up the self, studying the parameters, sitting, and living out of that with ourself, our body, our mind, for the sake of all beings. And it's still this person here. So I think about the great teachers that I've met in my life, uh, Daito Roshi, Roshi Kaplow, and a few others, and they all had a very clear self. They were not nobodies. And yet they were very clear. So whatever enlightenment is, it can't be apart from our ordinary life, from the life we live in. And yet from a different perspective, enlightenment is transcendental. It goes beyond that life. It includes that life, but it goes beyond that life. And what, it, what is that beyond? 
And I'm not going to answer that question. That's our investigation here. How can it be that life, the mundane life, uh, which in, so to give you a personal example of um, feeding cows grain, of stepping into a small corral with 12 cows in the mud and muck, etc., and taking care, and feeding a particular cow who gets bullied by the other cows and fending off all the other cows trying to get that food with my hoe, you know, and whacking them in the head in the midst of standing significantly deep in cow shit and mud. And, you know, well, that's as ordinary as you can get. You all have your equivalents of that in your own life. Um, is that a deluded life or an enlightened life? Whatever enlightenment is, it can't be apart from our being and our sense of ourself. And yet certainly there is insight. There is realization, there is awakening in which we see that our sense of a separate self is a delusion. A delusion that we are going to use to help us and others and other beings. And ultimately in that seeing, no words are necessary. That's a tough one. No words or thoughts are necessary. And I talked about that in the opening of the Sazankai. You know, the famous finger pointing. And what is it pointing at? So the parameters are kind of a flashing arrow that invites us to follow the Yellow Book Road to our own responsibility for our own awakening. It is I who support them, he said not they who support me. So the Buddha says, not letting their minds become attached to material appearances, they engage in the transcendent practice of the parameters of generosity for the happiness of all beings. And I'm going to go through the parameters and spend various amounts of time with each, um, but as briefly as I can. But I want to stress dana paramita. It's no accident, it's the first parameter. It's the heart of our practice, being generous towards others and ourself. It's the heart of our practice, which means in order to do that, something has to be let go of, right? My first impulse might be, um, when that opportunity to be generous, no, it's mine. It's me, I'm going to take care of this person first. Not as that thought. It's much deeper, much more profound, much more connected intimately to our separate sense of self than that thought. It's an emotional charge. It's a threat, is what it is, connected to fear and desire. So in this world we live in, where everything we have has been given to us, already given to us, where nothing we have is truly ours. And I challenge you, I'm open, you know, to, to you finding something that's yours and yours alone, that didn't come from the infinite beings that are in this universe. That's a real challenge. Not even our own body and mind. It's, it's not generosity to make sure that everyone has enough. It's justice. And so the emphasis right now in this um, in the MRO and in other Buddhist centers, uh, each one in their own way, 
is, is to see what that means in the actual practice. I'm looking along the room, and while I may be missing someone, everybody here is white. You know? So how, um, how is that? Why is that? Well, it's clear only white people can practice this, right? Well, I'm being sarcastic. I mean, the Buddha wasn't Caucasian. So there we go. Here it is in this room. The generosity or not generosity. What are we missing? And is it our responsibility? And what is our responsibility? And we can extend this to many other perspectives of exclusion that we are built into the society and to us. So giving generosity really just means not interfering with the naturalness of the generosity and the, the profound understanding that giver and receiver and what is being given and received are one wholeness, a single wholeness amidst the giver and receiver and whatever the object we're talking about. And, you know, obviously we can talk about giving of material goods and spiritual benefit and fearlessness, but the most precious thing we can give is ourself, our presence, our awareness, our being. And also a sensitivity to what you give is what you receive. You want to know why you're hurting or people are treating you poorly or, you know, shit's coming down the chute at you? Uh, look at what you're offering with your mind, with your thoughts, with your deeds. And I have to tell you, it's a wonderful experience to be in the midst of living in uh, Aho, who's in the room, I think, lists in our life. There are seven kinds of shit that we deal with. Um, and she names the animals. And I mean deal with. I'm not talking conceptually. I mean hands-on to one degree or another. And it's a cow, pig, uh, two cats, uh, two dogs, humans, children. I'm probably missing a couple. Um, So it's wonderful when you're in that pasture and the cow is doing its business, of which there are a couple of different types that it can offer you, that she can offer you. Um, And in in your physical proximity... um, and there's not much you can do with And we have small cows with an 800-pound cow who wants to deposit where they want to deposit. I mean, you're not going to influence that in a positive way. You know? So how does one look at that? Is this a gift? Well, if it's a gift, how is it a gift? Is this a, uh, you know, what, what am I going to do now with my mind and my body? Where is the equanimity and the uh, me supporting the paramitas in that moment. So I'm giving you a graphic barnyard example, but apply this to your own life. Please apply this to your own life, independent of animals. It's much more about, it's, this is about relationship. What's the relationship between me and this particular brown cow that I dearly love and that I'm defending from bullying from these other cows, who I also love and respect, um, but you know, I'm hitting them in the head with a hoe. <laughs> it doesn't bother them at all. They have much harder heads than I do. <laughs> In any case, the invitation here is to 
um, is to actualize the, the interdependence that we're always talking about, the wholeness that we're always talking about in the midst of children, relationship, bosses, conflict, and to do it skillfully. Not giving rise to restrictions regarding the projection of objective conditions. This is the parameter of morality. That's a complicated way of saying um, don't be fooled by your understanding of how uh, what's right and what's wrong, your projection of that. Well, that's not so simple. I mean, the 16 Bodhisattva precepts are there to free us from moral paralysis. They're there to guide us. But they're not going to free us from moral complexity or from the responsibility of making a decision that has moral implications. It's not. And so all I have to do is throw up the name of Donald J. And there it is. You know, What's your responsibility to that? Is, is J him or his son? I think it's him. doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Um, but what's your relationship to that? What are your thoughts about that? What are your deeds about that? How do you understand that in terms of the Buddhist precepts, in terms of compassion and generosity and, um, and projection and morality and your own actions? After all, all of us have him within us, as horrifying a thought as that is. You know, it's interesting, in the precepts, there's no praise or blame. And that might seem like a a funny kind of morality. So then the question is, what are the precepts based on? If there's no blame, no evil or good in that sense, um, what are they based on? Uh, Kushante, or variously translated as uh, forbearance, acceptance, patience, forgiveness. Another translation might be inclusiveness. Patience. Inclusiveness. Isn't that interesting? To me, that's a fascinating perspective. Inclusiveness. Patience as including everything in our impatient world. And it's not speaking of a control of impatience. It's not speaking of, I'm going to stake myself now in this moment of being impatient so that within my impatience, I'll be patient. It's not speaking of that. I mean, we all know how to do that, particularly if you have children. And the opposite of patience, interestingly enough, from a Buddhist perspective, is hatred. Think about that. When you demand something on your timetable, when you're not patient, how is that hatred? How? It is. There's an aspect of imperturbability in the face of harm and hardship. It's an aspect of, you know, I'm thinking of a long-term relationship, which is an aspect of my life in so many venues. And how learning how to love and learning how to, and I'm not just talking about um, intimate love, although that too. How much of that is, is forbearance and patience? Forbearance in a deep and profound sense. And how hard that is to learn because how much of our relationship is self-based. And there are times when things are to be endured, 
And a bodhisattva recognizes that within that endurance is a profundity, is is a basis of the practice of equanimity and presence and awareness. And we're enduring. You know, we're putting up with the circumstances of our life. Well, how can we do that in a way that is not just, you know, suffering, pure suffering? That there's, there's a seam of gold here. And when something bad happens to us and we react badly, you know, we, we put ourselves in the, the place of being bitter, of creating a habit and a karma of bitterness. We've all met people whose life is staked on their bitterness. And it seems unending. It doesn't matter what comes down the line because what's happened to them is they've established that railroad track that whatever is occurring, I'm bitter towards, I'm angry towards, I'm hostile towards. And if it's not exactly, and I mean exactly what I want, that's, we don't have to look far to see this out there, but what about us? Uh, virya. So studying ourselves from the perspective of energy and determination, which is crucial and not spoken about enough, in my opinion, about our life force, about the fundamental energy of who we are. It's, hard, it's not spoken about because it's very difficult to speak about. And it's easy to dismiss. But I think every person who sits here, every person, every person who sits here, you know, can look to that fundamental energy of that force as to what they're doing, where they are, how they got here, wherever here is, but in particular towards spiritual training. There's a karma, there's a lifetimes of karma that's bringing you to this mat. It's not an accident that you're sitting here this day in this place. It is not. Now you can buy that or not buy that, and it does, frankly, it doesn't matter to me. I'm just speaking of the Buddhist teaching in my own experience as well of my own understanding of that as far as it goes. And so this is bodhicitta. This is joyous effort. This is a willingness to allow my heart to open in the name of this lifetime, that's the only lifetime I have, in the name of helping you and I awaken. It's a willingness. In the midst of the personas we are, Forgive me for saying this, but don't forgive me. Of the assholes we are, right? The people we are, the personalities we have, the endless desires we want. In the midst of that, which are never going to go away, there's a joyous effort. There's an energy. There's a life force. doesn't matter how old or young you are. doesn't matter where you are in life. We could always turn our life towards the Dharma. And it's the practice of hopefulness and a deep faith in the bodhisattva aspiration, meaning our aspiration, that every moment of our life has this potential when we turn towards this paramita. Not becoming attached to the nirvana of shravakas when projections cease. This is the paramita of meditation. Well, I already talked about this. I mean, when everything falls away and we're in wonder, wonder zazen land, who would not want that, right? Who would not demand that to be our ongoing mind state? Well, what about the person sitting next to you who's crying? 
it's interesting to think that Zazen is not about you. To me, that's a fascinating thought. That Zazen is not about me. It has nothing to do with me. Thank you very much. What a disappointment. <laughs> and if you do it, it'll inevitably lead you to see that the self we live out of and will continue to live out of is a facile construction. It's a ghost. It's a, you know, it's the wizard of ours behind the curtain, you know, that's being exposed, playing the piano away or the organ, whatever it was, away, and yet actually not in control of anything. And examining the non-existence of the projections of one's mind with insight, without falling into dualities and transforming one's karmic body into an indestructible one and reaching the realm of the personal realization of Buddha knowledge. Reaching you, reaching the realm of awakening. You, I'm talking about you. This is the paramita of wisdom. It's what it's all about. It's what it rests on. So this is a sutra. In a sense, it's a cookbook of practice and awakening. But you can't eat a cookbook. You have to actually cook, said the man who hates cooking. Well, actually, you can eat a cookbook, but it's a bit chewy, isn't it? And it's probably not going to address your suffering. And so it is with these sutra, with the paramitas, with anything, including zazen. We can dot all the I's across all the T's, but more is required, not as a way of demanding something that is beyond our ability, but as a way of fulfilling our own desire to awaken or cultivating that if it's not visible to us. So I took up a quote from Leonard Cohn. Uh, It's a bit subtle, but I think you'll get it. So here, right here, between the birthmark and the stain, between the ocean and your open vein, between the snowman and the rain. Once again, once again, love calls you by your name. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as meditation cushions, incense, malas, liturgical instruments, books, and more, visit the Monastery Store at monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.